Welcome to this episode of War Cry Podcast. We are an all-Native-run podcast discussing data, events, stories, issues, and historical connections about Northwest missing and murdered Natives. Thank you for joining us for this episode. My name is Emily Washings, and co-hosts today are Patsy Whitefoot and Robin Pibashi. One announcement we have is there was an article in the Spokesman Review on Sunday, July 26, 2020. Inland Northwest lawmaker pushes for House vote on bills to protect Native women. I was quoted in that article. A lot of the topics that were discussed will be discussed here today. I want to, uh, again, thank you for tuning in. And I turn it to Robin to introduce our guest. Chef Patrai. Today we have a very special guest, someone that I had been able to work with in my early days of research. And I just highly respect this, this woman, Abigail Epohawk. She's Pawnee. She was born in Alaska, where she was raised on traditional values. Miss um, Elkohawk currently serves as the director of the Urban Indian Health Institute and is a chief research officer at the Seattle Indian Health Board. In these roles, she also works as American Indian Alaska Native tribes and organizations to help identify health research priorities and with the health research researchers to ensure uh, research is done in a manner that respects tribal sovereignty and is culturally appropriate. I had the privilege of working with Abigail as she was a tribal liaison at a university research uh, facility, and I highly respect her methods. And I, you know, everything that was said here is completely true about always giving power to tribes, tribal people, and sovereignty, as well as advocating for those in the urban tribal urban areas. And I'm just overjoyed that she's able to join us today. Thank you, Robin. It's so exciting to be able to join all of you. Some three of my favorite people that I definitely look up to and look to for um, ensuring that the voices of Indigenous people and Native women um, lead and are at the forefront of this issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women, particularly here in the Northwest. And in thinking about that, um, I, you know, there have been some recent events, and I love that you brought up what, you know, an article that recently came out here in the Pacific Northwest, but I'm reminded of, um, and I want to dedicate, they, you know, you let me know I could possibly dedicate this to some folks. I'd like to dedicate this um, time that I spend with all of you to the incredible Native women who stood outside of, the, uh, of Minnesota where Ivanka Trump opened up the new office for missing and murdered indigenous peoples in Minnesota. And so to those native women who stood outside and protested and said, why don't pretend to care? Don't, don't come to us with that, you know, we'll pretend right now that you matter. Um, where they were saying, you know, this isn't, this administration has not been friendly to native people, is truly has not invested what they should in ensuring the safety and well-being of our communities and it takes real courage and so today i am just full like feel full of power right now from looking at those photos and reading the signs and hearing what those incredible native women said and did at that important time on yes there are small movements forward but we refuse to accept anything but the best for our people so i'd like to dedicate this time that we spend together today to those incredible women and the indigenous men and other folks who stood with them um, as they again called for justice for our people. Thank you so much. And one thing that I wanted to add about Abigail before we get into um, some questions is in addition to, you know, having a master's and, you know, being the director of UIHI and things like that, um, she's also an artist and she's a poet. I feel like she's like an Instagram star. You're probably going to get like a verification pretty soon. <laughs> I, I know you're a seamstress, you're a mother, uh, you're a sister, you have a lot of brothers and sisters and just in general, I, I'm, I miss being able to see all of your, you and your brothers and sisters interact and the things that you guys come up with because you're all really talented. And um, yeah, that's all I wanted to get out there before we go get started into kind of the, the nitty gritty 
you know, of our, our primary, primary focus here, which is MMIW, MMIG, and MMIP. Uh, yeah, so since you brought up Minnesota, let's get into that. I mean, I have a question just broadly for our group here. Did you know there were going to be uh, seven uh, cold case task force announced? Do you know how they selected them? And what are your thoughts about Washington not being one of those uh, states that's selected for uh, the seven offices? So um, there wasn't a lot of information that was put out until they actually said, hey, we're opening this off these offices. We knew that there had been individuals that had been hired in particular areas, but we weren't aware of the establishment of these offices in the way that they did. Um, there's been very little information put out on how they decided what offices were going to be where. And to me, that you know really shows a lack of coordination with tribal nations and urban Indian communities on this crisis. Um, I do know that that presidential task force, which is called Operation Lady Justice, Operation Lady Justice has been doing the listening sessions across the United States. And there's indications that, um, but again, no confirmation that where and how the offices and where they were picked were based on some of those listening sessions. There's no confirmation of that. And so, you know, definitely I'm curious as to why Washington State did not have one of those offices, um, how they picked them, what criteria was used to pick them, and how they're going to be interacting and coordinating with already existing efforts. And while again, seven offices is great, it is barely scratching the surface of what we actually need to begin to address this crisis nationwide. And I agree with you, um, Abigail, in the where those uh, offices were selected to be positioned. I, I wondered as well about the, the conversations they may have had with community and family. It was disturbing to, of course, to read, read where those offices are located. And I agree with you, they're, they're, they're desperately needed. But I think that they also should have taken into consideration the dialogue that we particularly had here in the Northwest, uh, because we had a, you know, a large audience, uh, regardless if it's on, you know, distance uh, communication, uh, we still have been speaking out about this need. And so I agree, uh, what criteria is being used in those offices. And we did previously have a discussion on Operation Lady Justice, and of course, we did participate as well as our war cry team in that conversation. And so continuing to do uh, the work that needs to be done just to put this information out there to the larger community so people know about you know, this task force and Lady Justice. So thank you. One of the things that some of our listeners might be very new to this aspect and dynamic of what is a tribal nation, what is on reservation, what is urban, I wonder if you can talk about that a little bit and then how that informed your uh, co-authored report related to the snapshot of data. So when we talk about where are these offices, how do they correlate to the data that you've collected? Yeah, so, um, and this is a really important question. It's one that, you know, isn't often talked about. Um, when we talk about missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, Two-Spirit, um, LGBTQ folks, and just people generally, um, very often the concentration is on the federally defined Indian country. So under the federal law, they defined Indian country as those reservations and villages. And so very often this conversation is concentrated on the atrocities that are happening in these federally defined reservations and villages where the current U.S. structure of law enforcement allows for perpetrators to come in to abuse our people, to not get prosecuted, um, and to often operate with impunity as a result of the federal government's work with the tribal nations and the tribal governments and the inability to truly be able to ensure that our people are safe. And so very often the conversation talks about that with the federally recognized tribes and their sovereign nations and the land in which they hold as Indian country. So in not talking about it as a federal designation, Indian country is this whole country. 
Like this, this United States, this North America is Indian country. And so regardless of where we live, we are an Indian country. So I live in Seattle right now. I am not on my reservation in Oklahoma on my father's side. I'm not in the village areas of where I was raised in Alaska, um, but I am a native person living in the city of Seattle. And one of the things that we knew is that these high rates of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls were happening in the cities too. But the conversation had never gone beyond that because um, in this conversation very often, people wanna concentrate on almost making it our fault. Saying, well, it's happening on your villages and your reservations, but it doesn't happen other places. So obviously, you know, that's, that's your issue, not our issue. Um, and so the rates of missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, and people in the United States and urban areas had been completely ignored. And so the report that we authored, um, I authored uh, with Anita Lucchese, was released in November of 2018. That report very specifically took a look at and gathered data from 71 cities across the United States. Um, how did I pick those cities? Anita and I were able to look at the network that we currently have, the Urban Indian Health Institute, which I direct. Um, and then we picked another few spots that we knew were kind of hot spots, uh, but we didn't have the funding or the ability to do every city in the United States. That would have been the goal, but we didn't have the ability to do that at the time. When we took a look at the information that came from public records requests from police departments in those 71 cities, we saw what we already knew but had never been able to prove through the data. And what we saw is that there was an incredible number of American Indian Alaska Native women and girls who had gone missing or had been murdered in those 71 cities. In addition to that, what we also found is that within the law enforcement databases, very often they simply weren't gathering the race and ethnicity of those individuals who were gone missing or being murdered. And that in itself is an incredible, huge problem. By not gathering the data, they were effectively hiding the actual impact. So our report showed that there was an incredible crisis in cities across the United States of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. But what we know is that is an absolute gross undercount. That means that there are hundreds, if not thousands, of Native women and girls who have gone missing and been murdered in those cities who were simply never captured in the data. And to me, that is the absolute, that's how we see institutional and structural racism. So racism that has embedded itself in a system that is meant to hide disproportionality. And so if we don't have the data, then they often tell us we don't have the proof that it's happening in our communities. And what we found is not only did we find what data was there, but we were able to show that as a result of them not capturing the other data, that they were effectively hiding and harming our people by not including them in that data. And so that report is probably, I think, one of the proudest things I've ever been able to participate in. And Anita is absolutely brilliant, and I was so blessed to be able to work with her on this project. But one of the key things with that is that I couldn't get anybody to fund it. I couldn't get people to care. And so we decided that it, that didn't matter. We were going to do it anyways. And that to me is what indigenous data sovereignty is. That is expressing our sovereignty and our indigenous data practices of gathering information to ensure the well-being of our community. And we don't have to wait for funding. We don't have to wait for policymakers to decide we matter. We know we matter. Our ancestors survived so we could thrive. Um, and so I was able to um, self-fund that project. I actually went out and did a whole bunch of speaking engagements and raised $20,000, um, which is what funded that project. And it's probably the smallest amount of money for the biggest impact we've ever had in doing work that directly resulted in impactful policy. So. Um, to me, it was just the illustration of the creator provided. When we led with the idea of this matters, our people matter, we're going to do what is right, we are going to do what is being asked of by the community, and then the creator provided the resources for us to be able to do that. And so what I would encourage all the folks who are listening is when you think about this crisis is 
don't wait for resources to appear. Pray, be in communication with your spiritual folks. Follow the guidance that your elders and your ancestors put before you and do what you know is right. And the creator will provide as you move forward in that way. I'm curious, Abigail, about the report and the kinds of responses that you've had from these institutions that wouldn't provide the necessary support. So I'm curious about some unusual ones that you're surprised about who reached out to you. So um, it, it's, it's always interesting. And I've thought, you know been doing research for a really long time. Um, and it's something that I've seen before. When you see a research project that is successful, everybody wants to claim a part of it. Mm -hmm. And so we saw that like immediately after people were from universities across the country, like, can we have access to your data? We'd like to do this. We'd like to do that. But I would say in the first couple of months, I didn't have one single university contact me and say, how do we work collaboratively with you and with the community? They just wanted access to our information uh, that they were intending to apply for grants and other things for. And in that sense, I was really disappointed um, because I was hoping, and again, the value systems from which we come from is that everything that we do is for the community. It's not for personal gain. It's not for the gain of our organization. It's for every child. It's for every elder. It's, it's for our people. And those were the folks who saw it first. As it began to trickle down into the community, into the grassroots organizations, into the native organizations, we were absolutely overwhelmed by the incredible response of love and of asking what are the resources we can use from this report to drive change in our local communities. And so that, that was um, what we were hoping for and that's what we got from our community. But I was disappointed in the academic world of folks who um, in a sense wanted to co-opt what we had done and use it for their own benefit. And so we're very careful about who the data goes to. I don't release any of the data from the report without consulting with Anita and ensuring that it's something that's gonna benefit the community. Um, we don't release data that could harm the community. And so we've held on to that very tightly. And I think that some folks think we're hoarding it, which we're not. We are just not going to allow um, our people's voices and their stories to be used in a way that doesn't benefit them. And, you know, all data is story. And we always have that responsibility as storytellers to protect the individuals, to protect the story. And we have a responsibility to that story to ensure that it is used for the good and well-being of our people. So um, we've been able to see that. And as a result of holding that ground, we have seen other things evolve that um, we've seen organizations across the country use us as an example and a standard um, that they have now implemented in the way that they're doing their reports on missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and other people in their states. I want to thank you for that report. I was actually in a um, Taco Bell parking lot when I first read this and I, you know, there's certain things that happen in your life that you just remember so vividly and distinctly because I remember opening it and reading it and thinking, I only have like 10 or 15 minutes with this, but I, there's a high level of accountability for me now, just even reading this. And I, everything that you just said right now about putting this out there for our communities, for our women, I felt that. And the reason I only had 15 minutes is I was asked to give a press quote about it and the time was like ticking down. And I, you know, I remember reading and seeing one of our Yakima women. And that was the first time I'd ever seen their name listed with that. Sandra Lee Smiskin is in that report. Her son, George Lee, uh, was a guest on our show, uh, the last episode. And you're right, it did bring a lot of information forward for us to reference. It was a reference point. It was something that I continue to look at and think, how can I bring something to our community like this here in Yakima? For those of you that don't know, we have nine homicides this year that are being investigated by the FBI on the Yakima Reservation. Um, it's not clear all the time if those are victims or suspects. <laughs> There's little information given. We also have another report that you wrote 
if we want to get into that one. Do you want to switch on? Okay. I want to make sure there's nothing else. Um, so the Washington State Patrol last year released a, a, a document that talked about the missing uh, Native women. And shortly thereafter, there was a report that you uh, authored. If there's any co-authors, please add that. Titled, We Demand More. And I just wonder if you can talk about what that report is, what it meant, what it is you want people in the Northwest or in Washington to know uh, that we as Native women are asking for. That report um, was one that emerged out of immediate need. And I do have a couple co-authors on that report. My sister, Leila Kohak, who is an attorney, um, because I needed legal advice. And I'm not a lawyer, and I'm not going to step into that. Um, so she was able to provide the legal expertise. And a colleague of mine here at the Urban Indian Health Institute, Adrian Dominguez. Um, and I want to thank them, because they volunteered. This was a completely unpaid report. It was something that had to be done. Um, and this goes back to, you know, something that a very dear friend of mine um, told me years ago when we were talking about our responsibilities to our people is he said, you know, we have to be who we say we are. And so if I am here telling you that I am devoted to our women and to our children and to our people, and if I am here and I am telling you that I am following my ancestors' footsteps and ensuring their safety and well-being, then that means that I have to be who I say I am take some risks, occasionally work for free um, on nights and weekends and what used to be my other office before COVID, which is Starbucks. <laughs> and um, the reason we did this report, we demand more addressing the report that came out from the Washington State Patrol is the Washington State Patrol, um, there was legislation passed in the state of Washington that required them to do an analysis of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls in Washington state. They spent time and held 10 meetings across the community, talked to some folks. I participated in three of those. I know you guys participated in some of them. And, you know, I actually had some strong hopes of what could be done when this report was released. So mandated by the legislation they had in June of 2019, they were required to release a report as a result of all of that time spent in the community. And what they released from a research perspective, from looking back on what the legislation told them to do, what they released was a piece of the crap. It was not only poorly done, it was poorly written, it did not represent what happened within the communities, and it did not fulfill the legislative mandate that was given to the Washington State Patrol. So when we think about these pieces of legislation that have happened across the country, and in fact, our first report is referenced in 12 pieces of legislation um, in 12 different states across the country that have passed to do reports and to hold focus groups and to have you know outreach and things related to missing and murdered indigenous women and girls when those pieces of legislation pass there is a responsibility to those agencies to fulfill what was in that legislation and washington state did not do that and in fact they were the very first state in the country to put out a report specifically on missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. And because of what they released, I knew because of what the conversations I was having nationwide, that the other states were going to be using them as their guidance, as their template on what they should be doing in their states with their legislation. And again, my, my dear friend's voice kind of echoing in the back, be who you say you are. And I can't say if I have this, you know, the, um, the gifts that my community has given to me and guided me into and to write to be able to do this research, I had a responsibility. And so we put out a counter report. Our counter report challenged what Washington State put out. We called out the institutional and structural racism that was embedded within that report that allowed them to put out something that was so bad because they don't have a lot of accountability and our people don't have a lot of political power. And it allows them to put out very subpar work while expecting our communities to pat them on the back and for us to say thank you that you did something. That is not what we can accept for our people. This report pointed out and redid completely their analyses. Um, and so we did a rigorous qualitative analyses of 
the meetings because they released all the notes. And with that, we came up with very specific findings that the community had asked for. And our report fulfills the legislative mandate that was put in that Washington State Patrol was supposed to do. And so when we released that report, and even to this day, you know, Washington State Patrol, there was a hearing at the end of last year where Washington State Patrol was being called out about our report. And the Washington State Patrol said, well, we've, we've been meeting with UIHI and the authors on this. They had one meeting with us. That's all we've had is one meeting. And they have not addressed any of the things that we brought up in their report, which includes, you know, the fact that they did a poor job. But there are very some specific things. They actively plagiarized our original report. There is plagiarism within their report, which they did not cite our, our report, but they wrote it in their own. They, in addition to that, the art that they have in the front of that report, as an artist, as a Native person who knows our art is more than something just to visually look at, it has meaning. They actually co-opted, and without the author's permission, they took the art from a Native artist in Canada, a First Nations artist, who had created this beautiful picture um, where it's a woman wearing a robe, and her robe is the faces of murdered women from Canada. And they didn't ask his permission. They put it on the front of the report. And when I contacted him, he, he told me he had no idea they had used it. They never asked his permission. It is a copyrighted piece of art. And, you know, I really felt a responsibility to him. Again, be who we say we are. And so I paid him for the use of that art on behalf of the state of Washington. I brought that to the director of the Washington State Patrol. We told him all of this. We told him about the plagiarism. We told him about the need for another analysis. I told him he could take our analyses and put it in their report. He could have it. We wouldn't ask for anything for it. And I also told him that they had stolen art that was copyrighted um, that that artist did not know about nor grant them permission to do. So we had that one meeting. I told him all of those things, offered to give him everything that we have, and they never contacted us again. Um, that plagiarism is still within the report. That art is still on the front cover. And at a hearing of the Washington State Legislature, they tell the Washington State Legislature that they're talking to us. Again, we see this continuous um, paternalism and non-action from our state, and I know folks are seeing it in other states, and we, again, have to call them out on it, because if we don't, then it will continue to perpetuate, and that is part of what perpetuates the violence against our community. So again, Washington State Patrol, if any of y'all are listening, you can have our analyses. I paid the artist for you to use his artwork, but he'd like to have a better version of it. <laughs> and stop plagiarizing us. Those, those are just basic dignity issues that we would ask when we think about um, how important our people are. And so that, that report um, has had incredible impact. I've talked to every single state that is in the middle of issuing reports right now. And I would get calls and they would say, we read your report on Washington State we don't want you to do one on our report. <laughs> and so again, um, when we be who we say we are, the creator, I, I, I believe it. I have to believe it. I know it to be true that those resources, that strength, that push for change that the creator assists us with comes through. So in issuing that report, it didn't have the change in Washington that I hoped it would because the Washington State Patrol simply didn't care. But it's had a change nationwide where all of the other states don't want us to issue the exact same kind of report. And then in just talking about Operation Lady Justice, on their website, they have a listing of all of the reports that have been done. There's not very many. Um, but for Washington, the only report they have listed is that faulty, plagiarized, and uh, illegal art stealing report. And I've sent them a request to add our rebuttal to that also. And I really hope they do add that up there so that they know our community, we are watching and we will ensure the best for our people. I appreciate that narrative and bringing those things to light. I don't think I've heard that to the extent and in your words before. So yeah, definitely when you create something, you should have um, credit. 
and you should have the the high version high resolution version <laughs> of your choosing you know when i read the so yes i was at the meeting patsy i believe was at um, the meetings here at yakima when i first read the washington state patrol document i had looked back into the maps from the um, ncic and i had seen that 20 out of the 56 missing women of available information right so we talk about and i wonder if you can talk about how we get erased in the data after this point but when i saw that 20 of the 56 missing native women were from yakima county immediately my mind went to i don't know who these 20 women are why is that information being withheld from us as community us as native women if somebody went through the process to put all this documentation forward to find them, why is that information withheld? I don't think people understand this dynamic of natives and our missing people's report that that's not going to be necessarily, there's no community board that's going to automatically go up even when they write a report where they're supposed to give some level of information that's still withheld. Um, I too have actually interviewed and asked them for those names and, and bringing this process out about that. And I wonder, I thought from what I recall from what you've written and said before is that that is an undercount. We don't know the numbers. We go invisible in the reports. And I don't know if people understand how do you go invisible as a native person in data um, regarding MMIW? Yeah, and, and that is one, it's one of the biggest concerning things um, and something that keeps me up at night, truthfully. I will wake up in the middle of the night and be like, oh my God, how can we fix this? Like ideas kind of flowing of how we can fix this. Um, eliminating us in the data is very purposeful. So if we are eliminated in the data, then there is no allocation of resources because policymakers and counties, states, et cetera, they allocate resources based on what they call data-driven decision-making. If we are not in the data, we no longer exist. And as we think about as tribal nations, many of our treaty rights are dependent on having tribal members and so when we look at eliminating us through the data, I believe it's an active form of genocide against our people by not capturing us in the data because then they can effectively eliminate the responsibility that we have, um, the trust responsibility for allocation of resources. And so we are actively working on this. So here in Washington State in that report that was put out, they said that there was 56 missing native women and girls in Washington State. And they just put out a number. So if you read their report, they didn't do any analyses on it. Again, this was kind of the sloppy work that I was talking about. As a data person, as somebody who runs an epidemiology center, I know you just don't put out what we call a raw number, which means nobody did any analysis of it. You didn't compare it to anything. And if you looked at their report, it actually shows, well, there's 56 missing native women, but there was more than 500 missing white women. So if you didn't know anything, you would look at that and say, oh, it's a bigger issue for white women. Why do we care about Native women? And so what we did that Washington State did not is that we did an analysis. And what we found is, yes, there's 56 that were reported missing. And when we did an analysis of the population of Washington State compared to non-Hispanic white women, we found that Native women in Washington State with that data, which I'll talk about how it's not great data to begin with in a second, we found that Native women were more than four times more likely to go missing in Washington State than white women. But because of how Washington State put it in their report, you could not tell that. Again, their report is what legislatures were going to use as, you know, their solid proof of what's happening. And they misrepresented it. So our report, it's, we put it very evident, four times more likely to go missing than white women. And with that is the caveat that we know that um, with the most recent data, we know that about 40% of all native people are misclassified within data. So that means that um, say somebody walks into a police station or they, uh, they take a, a report, instead of asking the family what race or ethnicity they are, they'll just mark down. So um, they mar may mark down, oh, this person appears to be white looking, whatever that means, and they'll mark that down. Oh, these people appear to be African-American looking, and they mark that down, and they don't ask. And when they don't ask and they pick a race or ethnicity for us, it effectively hides us. In addition to that, 
they simply don't check the box. And so we don't know what race and ethnicity folks are. And it's not required for them to do so. And so as a result of that, we know, um, and that's through some research that was done here in the Pacific Northwest and some hospital systems, that when tribal enrollment data and IHS data and a couple other data sources were used against hospital records, they found that a little over 40% of all Native people were misclassified as other races. And so if you just take that into account and say, okay, here's those 56, but we know that there's probably about 40% more than what that 50, number 56 actually represents, is that we are likely six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 times more likely to go missing in Washington state than white women. And that's why the racial misclassification issue is such an integral issue to just understanding. Um, I do want to say when I talk about the racial misclassification issue and the work that we're doing on that, is that I know that it's not, that's not an element of stopping the crisis. It is an element of understanding and unveiling what is actively being hidden from our people and from the rest of the country. And right now I have an active project going on here in King County, Washington, where I have partnered with the prosecutor's office in King County, Washington, and we are in the midst of completely changing their database systems. I'm going to be working with them to work with the federally recognized tribes in this area to ensure that the data we gather flows back and forth. But my team and I are in the midst of creating an actual resource that law enforcement can use that includes the database variables, how to ask for race and ethnicity, how to analyze, and what you're actually looking for with that data. And the most key thing, how do you work with the tribes in your area, the urban Indian organizations, to respect tribal sovereignty and to ensure community voice is present? So we are actively working on this issue, but every single report that needs to go out, anytime we talk about this, we have to know that when we say numbers like 56 missing Native women in Washington, that doesn't count somebody's sister, that didn't count somebody's daughter, that didn't count somebody's granddaughter because they were racially misclassified. And all of our people matter. And we cannot stand by and let them become invisible in the data. We have to ensure that that is corrected. I just wanna say thank you so much, Abigail. I always appreciate your words. In listening to you speak, it really became apparent to me. And you know, I, I work in research still myself uh, here on the reservation. And it just makes me reflect because our podcast is also about how history really impacts what we're doing today. And it, you know, when it comes to Native communities, we always go back to history in everything. But it's almost like historically, I feel like Native people, people of color have always been vastly uh, misclassified by all sources of data collection, you know? <laughs> so when you were speaking, it really just, it, it like rung in my head that it is important to know who we are, you know, even and just in ourselves. And then it just rang back to exactly what you had said earlier, quoting your friend, which is be who you say you are, you know, know who you are and then be who you say you are. So thank you so much for, you know, saying all that because, you know, even working with research myself, I'm always asking myself those, these same questions, like, where are we? I think the biggest thing is the reason we're always misclassified in these, these data collection sources is because it's never done by us. You know, the data collection is either never done by us or the source of where that data is going to be housed or anything is also not by Native communities and not by Native institutions and things like that. So. I always really, again, loved working with you and hearing those words, but thank you so much for saying all of that. Yeah, I, you bring up a really important point though, and that's what my organization, I actually we have a mission from, for the Urban Indian Health Institute, and that is data for indigenous people by indigenous people. And we have to recognize that Western, exactly like you said, Western methods of data collection were meant to harm us. They were meant to show that we were worse off. They were meant to show that we weren't as smart as other people. Um, and that is what has permeated Western systems of data collection is to either actively eliminate us or to show that, that we're less than. And as a result, that really harmed our community and that put some fear into our people around these Western data systems. So what we're doing is reclaiming 
our indigenous value system, we always gathered information. We, our medicine people gathered information, our leadership gathered information, and they did it over and over and over again so that our people could thrive, whether it be in where our homes were, where our food allocations were, everything was based on data in our communities. And so part of it is we've, we've gotten afraid because of the Western data systems, but we have an opportunity as Native people to say, we can go back to our own way of collecting data. And that's what we're doing here. That's why, again, I don't wait for the federal government to show up with resources for me. I'm gonna do what's right for our people. And that's, that's absolutely key to the reclamation of that. And then in talking about the history, this was something that kind of like, I was sitting in a meeting and uh, it was an education meeting. And I'm sure Patsy has heard folks say this before about when they talk about our kids and they talk about us, they're always like, you know, we're gonna talk about the historically underserved American Indians, Alaska Natives who have historically not received the resources, et cetera. And I was sitting there and I could remember this, this story that I have um, of one of my family members, my Pawnee family members from seven generations ago. And in that story that I think of, and it's a, it's a war story actually, is that he went into that battle for me, you know, because of me, because he was praying for me and fighting for me as um, those next generations. And I thought, why am I letting this language be attached to us? Historically, I am not underserved. Historically, I was loved, I was prayed for, and my ancestors always had my well-being on their thoughts. And so um, how I feel about it now is that I am colonially underserved. I am um, institutionally underserved and underrepresented, but our history, is one of strength, is one of resiliency, and is one of love always for our people. And so again, part of what we do here and with my team is challenge these Western ideas of who people think we are, but who are we really? And how do we remain grounded in that? And in the days where this gets hard, because sometimes I've just sat in this office in this chair and just cried because it was hard. And the stories that I heard would break anybody's hearts. And I feel those stories and the gift of them. But it's those ancestors' prayers that I hold on to. And I actually have this little, very old, crunchy post-it note, because it's been up there for four years, <laughs> um, on my wall, and it's right on eyeline. And it says, um, I sing songs for your children's children, because I know that's what my ancestors did for me. And I know that is my responsibility to be a good ancestor. And so, um, we have to be who we say we are. Thank you so much, Abigail. I really appreciate your sharing. And of course, I've reviewed all of these documents, even the state document, taking a look at that and various legislation as well. One of the things I've been advocating for throughout all of this, you know, the reports and legislation and hearings is the voice of families, the voices of families who are impacted by this. And, and of course, with the, the report that you did with uh, your colleagues at the health board, you know, I think about uh, just the artwork that was done, that's portrayed. To me, that's a part of the story, that uh, the dresses that you had there, and then the creative way of showing data. I mean, that was done very creatively to take a look at the data and it can be challenging to take a look at data, uh, particularly, you know, when our children you know, are facing some of these educational issues in our schools. And, you know, as you're talking, I'm just thinking about all these other areas where there's misclassification, misidentification of American Indian Alaska Native students as well in our school systems. So I just want to really thank you for, you know, doing this work along with your colleagues and want to get to a point where we could also make certain we have the voices of families as well. And I think uh, for us, because of the role of law enforcement in this and you know, issues related to law enforcement, really want to highlight the appropriate training that's needed uh, for law enforcement as well. The culturally grounded 
training that you're talking about and education for law enforcement. I mean, as I get into the nitty gritty of understanding law enforcement a little bit more better as a result of this, you know, of these pieces of legislation and reports that are being done, I'm learning more as well. And of course, violence continues to go on in our communities and we have to continue to keep moving forward. You know, if we're the resilient people and we say who we are, then we have to keep moving forward as well. So thank you very much for sharing this report with us today. Well, a snippet of the report, incredible work. We'll give uh, links to the report so people can read it in its entirety. Of course, the narrative is important though. Hearing these things, I think it was last year, This, like within the same week that the Washington State Patrol released their report, Canada released a report on their um, years long about MMIW. And uh, actually they included the LGBTQ and two-spirit community in their report they expanded it slightly. And this is what everybody, all the news focused on was this term and use of the word genocide, which I think is so interesting to hear you um, just flow and say it just seamlessly. Now today, you know, a year or so later, I wonder, did you get any pushback about that? Have you gotten pushback? You mentioned schools, you mentioned law enforcement, Patsy. Do we think we're going to hear that term more as a use with our education system in these reports? Mm -hmm. I'm just interested in that process. I feel like I say the word genocide at least once a day because it's the lived reality of our people. Um, I think about my own tribe, the Pawnee Nation in 1910, there was less than 700 Pawnee tribal members left. I am a tangible, physical manifestation of my ancestors' resiliency and their survival through a genocide. Um, and so I, I, it kind of made me, I mean, I shouldn't laugh about it, but when, when people were concentrating on that word, I'm like, I say it in every single interview. What has changed though, is that since that came up in Canada and it became this like big issue, is that I say it and you know, I get interviewed quite a bit um, on a variety of different things, but mainly health and violence against women. Um, is people started to print it. That shocked me. I've had it printed more in the last year as part of my statements than I've ever seen before, but I've always said it uh, because we can't hide in America. This country cannot hide the bloody, violent way that um, this land was taken and the way that violence is still being perpetuated against Native people. But it, it, that when folks were, again, were concentrating on that word, we've always been saying it. And now I'm actually seeing people print it, which in itself is kind of exciting, is that with it comes a, that word means so much and it has a definition to it that when you get the New York Times to print it, then the rest of America is like, oh, a genocide, yes. Yes, a genocide. Um, but it, that, that movement in Canada, um, I think we've been building off a lot of what we've done here in the United States, following the footsteps of those incredible folks, the First Nations communities who have been fighting for their women um, and for their people and continue to do so. And it's really great to see the integration and how we can support each other because their report benefited us immensely. Just the location where we're at, you know, we have relatives in Canada as well, just simply because we have borders doesn't mean, you know, that we're going to carry on, uh, you know, we're going to discontinue our relationship with, you know, First Nations relatives, but, um, you know, it's all over the country, you know, in the United States, and then our relationships that we have, you know, with Alaska Natives and Native Hawaiians as Indigenous peoples, uh, We'll continue those relationships and as indigenous peoples I see more and more where the term genocide is used and I just think it's a dialogue that we need to continue to have because we can't continue to have them only in our our small groups that we're talking with or in committees and call it genocide but and then when we get into the non-native community then we're not going to use that genocide I mean we have to all discontinue that and be honest about what was done and about that history as well.
And so we know about the role, the impact of boarding schools, military schools, Christian schools, et cetera, the list goes on about this forced assimilation. So yeah, so please keep using that term and we'll continue to, to do the same as well. We might call it something else when we're talk, talking about data, uh, particularly for native children as well. One of the things that I see in data with native children is just, again, they're diminished, but uh, also we don't talk to our children about, you know, if they're descendants rather than a citizen of their tribe. And so that's another conversation that I've been educating students about is about their role as a descendant too, and to learn to claim who you are uh, because it's important that our children know what their identity is. And so that's where I'm at. You know, and thank you so much again for this conversation. I've just really enjoyed it. I mean, my mind is going everywhere right now. <laughs> if you don't know, Abigail, my next um, case study is actually called War Cry. Oh. And I, um, yeah, I really wanted to bring forward this aspect of strength and vulnerability. And I, you know, I changed the title a lot. I beta tested this for about a year. It, you know, who beta tests a 15 page document? <laughs> you know me I did it uh, I did it because I felt like there was so much historically to be brought up and you've given us so much to think about here the colonial underserved term I haven't heard that used before um, and so yeah like Patsy said it's going to give me a lot to think about as Robin has talked about with the data it's definitely something that I I'm going to reflect on. You talked about this idea of not waiting for resources, of not, of using, you know, the tools that you have in any team that you have that might be willing to volunteer. And I wonder if we can have you close out with kind of these, this comment to those people that are sitting there looking at their people being hurt, you know, and kind of, I feel like you've given so many different inspirational messages and we've given it broadly, but I really want to talk to that person that is in their community right now that is thinking they might be able to make change. And I just wonder if you can give them um, a little bit of inspiration. Um, I think I, I sat for so long myself thinking about how could I actually contribute? What did I have that was actually going to make a, a difference? And as a survivor of violence myself, very often I got trapped in my own um, triggers. And um, it wasn't until I began to move forward into a healing journey um, that really grounded me in understanding who I was as a Pawnee person as a person affiliated with the Athabascan people in Alaska, that I was able to see a path forward. And so um, when I think about myself sitting on my couch, reading all of the things and thinking about how do I contribute? What I would say to people who've been in those same positions are in that position right now, is one of the best ways to start is to acknowledge and to find the healing that you need for whatever traumas you may have be, have happening to you right now and have happened to you in the past um, as a result of this colonial world that we live in that is actively harming our people. That will allow us and see paths forward. And then look at the resources around us. And so it could be the elders. I always think of Patsy who texts me every once in a while and I look forward to those texts because I know like when I see them that I know that she's prayed for me, that she cares about me, that she is standing with me and I am standing with her. Find those people in your community and you may have to go to, when I say community, to a nationwide Indian country to find those people to be that support system that you stand with, that you stand behind. And sometimes when you're in protection mode, you stand in front of. That's another opportunity for you to make a difference and to make a change. And then to always know that there are resources within your community that when elevated, when raised up, when people know about them, that are and can be an active part of the healing of your people, whether it's addressing, you know, um, 
the violence that you see in terms of sexual violence or domestic violence or other kinds of violence, whether it be family members who you've lost, who have gone missing or who have been murdered, there are resources in your community that you can grab a hold of that you can gift to other people. One of my relatives told me, and this is what has really allowed me to keep doing this work, is that as a people who we're always about gifting, about giving our best, is that I, I am, have a responsibility to gather all the resources around me to create the greatest gift to give to the people. And sometimes it's that one person who needed that one word of encouragement. Sometimes it's taking the academic knowledge I learned at the university and that was gifted to me by the elders, the youth and the community that I live in to create a report. And sometimes it's that simple email that says, I saw you on that webinar. Not only were your earrings awesome, <laughs> but um, I love you, I support you, and I stand with you. All of those things are actionable things we can do today, we can do right now, because all of those little, they may seem little, but it's those little things that provide us the support systems to make the big change. Because none of us are doing this alone, none of us. And we should never try to do it alone. We have to be doing it together. And so there are so many opportunities for us to stand with each other in that way. And I can't even tell you what the little text messages from Patsy and the other ones that I get, what they mean and how they allow me in times that seem very hard to be able to keep moving. And so we have that opportunity and it starts with our own individual healing. Uh, I always love that you and your family have that duality and because you have your roots in Alaska and I know you all are very tied to those roots in Alaska, but you're simultaneously still very proud Pawnee members, which is on the other side of, you know, the nation, but it just speaks to all of our identities being complex, you know, it's, and I really love not only in the reports that you have uh, in the way that you run your offices and things like that uh, just being a, a friend and somebody that we see in the community is that you always show that you can be a multi multitude of things you could be a tribal person you can have multiple of racial identities you could be an urban person a reservation uh, educated or working family member or even just be comfortable being alone but just kind of like just accepting who you are and i love that you spoke to kind of being able to help yourself first before you know you can effectively help your community. And I know a lot of, at least women that I work with and other tribal members who um, sometimes are burning at both ends because you know they're still trying to deal with their trauma and still trying to deal with their, their things uh, whilst trying to help other people, but simultaneously like traumatizing themselves by you know, going into these things, uh, hearing other people's stories and identifying with them so much. But also what I really liked is that you did say data is a story. And that's something that we definitely want to address here on War Cry is like our previous guest, his mother was a part of uh, the report UIH I had released and he acknowledged that she was like a data point and he didn't mean it in a bad way or anything like that, but he goes, yeah, she was definitely a data point and a part of a statistic but this is her story and this is who she is. And I feel like that's something that we really want to emphasize here is we want to bring those uh, stories of people because each data point is a person and they have a, a family, uh, they have people who love them and those families have questions still, you know, because they're a data point. But I guess I, some of the things I would like to know is what kind of feedback or support have you gotten from your community after releasing uh, these reports and things like that? Um, as well as have you had any interaction with uh, MMIW, MMIG, MMIP families? Yeah, we've had lots of interactions um, and I've had the, um, the honor and the privilege to spend time with families and to hear their stories. And the biggest gap that we had in our report is that it, it didn't include the stories. Um, and we knew that as it being the, the biggest gap and our intention always is to um, have a more, you know, in our researchy world, we call it qualitative and quantitative analyses. 
And to me, I was like, of course, you have to have both. You have to have the experiences of the families and you have to have the, the numbers of who it's impacting. Um, and so I, um, one of the things that I love the most, and it was actually a woman that I met um, when I was traveling and she came up and she shared the story of her granddaughter who had been murdered and in it, and she had a copy. I actually have one sitting here. She had a copy of our report, which is actually kind of hard to get a copy because I didn't have any money, so I had no money to print them. <laughs> so there was only ever a hundred copies that were ever published. She had a copy of it somehow. And she told me, she said, I have been fighting for my granddaughter and I have brought this report to every single meeting because it has helped me tell them that she is not alone, that this is something that's happening in the community. And um, I probably cried for about 20 minutes. Um, and that was always our goal is this. And Anita and her team at Sovereign Bodies Institute um, continue to work with survivors and families and the Urban Indian Health Institute, we're doing the same. Um, we are in the midst of starting a project that is specific to one state and I can't say what state it is right now, but it's specific to one state where we are just going to spend time talking to families. And we are going to um, be taking the data from that state uh, that we have gotten access to through the law enforcement, but we are going to talk to the families. And right now, we're finishing up our final documents we have to do through the institutional review boards and all of those things. But the families are just waiting and they keep telling us that, when are you gonna come talk to us? When are you gonna come talk to us? Um, so we anticipate in about nine months, we'll have another report that's gonna be specific to a state that is a true research study as our people would have done it that gathered all of the stories that associated with the numbers that law enforcement have and we hope to continue to do that work forward in that way we always saw this first report as the beginning as the first and how do we do better after that and again that's our responsibility to our people to do better with every single thing that we do and i'm really looking forward to that um, and I look forward to the responsibility to carry those stories well and to serve the families well as we move this forward. I just, uh, again, thank you so much for the work that you're doing, not only behalf of the people that are, are, are surrounding you and those territories where your family lineage is, but I think just for Indian country as a whole, and it's not just for Indian country, it also to me includes our indigenous people wherever they are because as I followed various reports, you know, with United Nations, et cetera, that are, that's worldwide, I think we're shedding, you're shedding light and us together with you are shedding light on these, these kinds of issues. And they, they fall over various landscapes. It's, I recognize it's beyond the work that we're doing and we're continuing that communication with our colleagues and in other parts of the world, and yet we're shedding light on what's happening on in our communities too. And I really appreciate our team. Um, I always tell our young team that I'm learning from them as well as an elder how to use technology here, and they just laugh at me, which is okay. <laughs> but you know, the role I think of you know our elders and some of the elders that I talk with, you know, around our community. You know, they're doing the work. And as you said, it's all volunteer work. It's not things that they're getting paid for, but doing the work in a way that they want to see our children to grow up healthy and happy and vibrant young people. And of course, it's a challenge some days and particularly when we're confronted with violence and assault on a, on a pretty regular basis here, which is pretty sad, but we can't allow ourselves to you know, go down that path. We have to continue to help model for our grandchildren and our children to keep on that right path and keep moving forward. So thank you for being that leader to help all of Indian country to be able to continue moving forward. So thank you, Abigail. Thank you, I appreciate all of you. Um, this is where our strength lies in our relationship with each other. So I just want to acknowledge that each one of you give me incredible strength. And um, I appreciate all of the work that you're doing every single day and being good family members, good tribal members, and just good community members. Thank you for joining us today. We would like to give a war cry out 
to something that was brought up in the conversation as a source of strength and comfort, uh, Patsy's little texts. We would also, of course, like to give a war cry to Abigail Echo Hawk and her team in all of their work for MMIW and MMIP. We have, uh, of course, the credits edited and produced by Robin Pibashi. Logo by John Alney Schellenberger with Native Anthro. Shirts by Nicole Pibashi. And music by Lee Sekekwaptiwa. And again, this episode is dedicated to the women and men in Minneapolis. Earlier this week, they stood outside advocating and continuing the work for our Native men, women, uh, and people um, that are fighting to be protected. Uh, so for those folks in Minneapolis, but especially uh, Lieutenant Governor Peggy Flanagan, who continues to stand with her people and to push for our safety and well-being. Thank you very much. You can find War Cry on anywhere podcasts are available. Please subscribe and join us for our next episode.